The following is a message by Dr. Brian D. Estelle from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a God who has revealed himself towards your people as kind and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, as this great uh, psalm testifies about. Uh, Lord, uh, we pray that you would indeed uh, reveal yourself to be, uh, to be such to us this morning as we look at a short passage uh, from the book of Galatians. Uh, Father, uh, enlighten our minds, illumine our hearts. Uh, O Lord, give us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I was assigned to um, meditate with you this morning on a passage out of Galatians. We've been going through Galatians, and the particular section I was asked to talk about is verses 7 through 12. I think I will read verses 1 through 12 uh, in order to set a context for Paul's uh, comments there in verses 7 through 12, uh, and that will help frame our discussion. So this is God's word from Galatians chapter 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You are trying to be justified by law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish that they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Thus the reading of God's word. Careless seems the great avenger history's pages but record. One death grapple in the darkness twixt old systems and the word. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Thus writes in a very famous uh, poem, 
by James Russell uh, Lowell from a particular stanza, uh, that immigrant to the U.S. who was become, to become one of the most memorable presidents of Harvard University and one of the best loved of American poets. Um, truth forever on the scaffold, uh, yet God stands keeping watch above his own. We don't usually think it is appropriate for New Testament Christians to call down imprecations on their enemies or their opposers, do we? Perhaps the chief place where this subject comes up is whether it's appropriate to sing the psalms of imprecation. You know, bash the babies against the wall, Psalm 137. Of course, this has been a great debate within the church about whether it's appropriate for a new covenant community who has been brought into union with Christ and whose ethic now stems from the Sermon on the Mount where we were told to have no revenge, whether it is an appropriate thing for Christians to sing those songs of imprecations during the New Testament period. There is an answer to that, which I'll not give you this morning, if you come and study with you with us, um, I'll tell you all about intrusion ethics and the classic uh, essays that have been written uh, addressing this very important issue. After all, I, as a minister of the gospel, only have a right to burden your conscience and holy worship on the Lord's Day with those things that God has prescribed for me to burden your conscience with. Otherwise, I have no business doing that. So this is a very, very important question. But what I want to focus on this morning is this imprecation that the Apostle Paul actually utters in verse 12. Would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Or as the NIV says, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Now this might be the last time Mark McVay ever schedules a prospective student conference on the day in which Professor Estelle happens to be leading the meditation. There are many that have tried to water down this imprecation. You know, oh, would that they would be damned. That's basically the implication, you know, that in various forms. Some have said, trying to rush to the apostles, allegedly rush to the apostles' defense, that it's only prophetic. Others, including Calvin himself, says that it was an ecstatic utterance. There's many that have tried to apologize for the apostle's words at this particular point when he's moved so passionately and, and with such pathos to speak against the enemies of the disciples that he birthed and nurtured there for a time and now writes to. I think rather that we should take this bald imprecation at face value and ask the question, what justification does the Apostle Paul, <laughs> as an exemplar insofar as he is in Christ, you know, uh, two New Testament saints, one redeemed on the road to Damascus, caught up to the third heaven, 
studied in that greatest interlibrary loan system of the world, probably out in the desert at Petra, maybe. Um, why would he be moved to utter this imprecation at this point? I wish the knife would slip and they would cut off their own genitals. I mean, is that really fitting for any New Testament Christian, let alone the Holy Apostle? Well, I think part of the answer to this question lies in exactly what the Apostle sees in the threat of the Judaizers. Because what he really sees, I think, in the threat, especially as we've been moving into a new section in Galatians, is that this is a threat against their Christian liberty and their freedom of conscience. You see, in verse 1, if you look at the structure of this section where you're moving into, which, which is moving into a kind of what we call around here paranesis, that is exhortation, uh, you begin to see what we often see in Paul's epistles, that you have an indicative statement. This is who you are in Christ. This is what you have been made. This is, this is now your position in the domain into which you have been transferred based upon all these wonderful blessings. Now do this. Look at the structure here and how often freedom comes up. Verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Okay, indicative. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Imperative, exhortation. And then in verse 13, so immediately follow the imprecation which we're focusing on, you get an indicative call to freedom again. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. And then in verse 25, if you keep clipping on in this section, you'll see that freedom is represented by life in the spirit and how the indicative and the imperative are brought together into a kind of wonderful confluence where they're almost come together and blend into one. And he addresses all these issues which people of faith are confronted by in their communal existence together. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, etc., etc., etc. Now that may not immediately strike you until you realize the very essence of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. This struck me especially recently when I was back east in my own presbytery listening to a few of our alums be examined before that august assembly of presbytery on the floor of presbytery for their licensure and ordination exams. And they were well instructed by one of our adjunct uh, professors, um, Reverend Chad Van Dixhorn, uh, who's the head of our candidates and credentials committee, and the issue of Christian liberty came up. So I must confess to you, I immediately thought, oh good, now they're going to talk about how Man is not subject to, Christian men and women are not subject to man-made rules and regulations, but they've been delivered from that. But they shouldn't use that Christian liberty as a pretense to sin or licentiousness. But that's not how they let in. And it struck me in a new way what the quintessence, where the very substance of Christian liberty and freedom of conscience is all about. 
because they had been well instructed to talk about section number one of chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession of Faith before they talked about section two and three. Listen carefully. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, freedom from the curse of the moral law, and in their being delivered from the present evil age, freedom from bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, freedom and victory over the grave and everlasting damnation, and also in their free access to God and in their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and with a willing mind. All which were common also to believers under the law, but under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communication to the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. Chapter 20, section 1. The divines nailed it. <laughs> Those are the glorious riches which are bequeathed unto you if you are a child of Christ. You see, we could highlight many things in this passage. We could discuss in this pericope, this appeal that Paul makes to the race, one of his favorite metaphors. We could talk about whether this, you know, these, these uh, Judaizers were partaking in a Gentile practice of mutilating themselves like we know happened in the practice of Sybil. And that would be all very interesting. We could even talk about whether the apostle has a kind of veiled reference here to may they be castrated, Deuteronomy 23, because after all, what happens to a person who is emasculated and their privileged access to you know, God's holy throne? Well, in the old covenant, it's no more. We could talk about whether, you know, we could reconstruct whether Paul's enemies and the Judaizers are gainsaying him and saying, well, he preaches circumcision too. After all, he required Timothy to be circumcised, right? That would all be very interesting, but it's not what I want to focus on. <laughs> I want to focus on, because I've always been struck by, this imprecation, would that they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Why does this apostle in God-breathed, God-inspired scripture say what he does? Take it at bald value, it's a bitter sarcasm on the fanatical obsession of these Judaizers with respect to yoking these disciples with the law. It is a realization of Paul's utter, deep-seated, passionate concern for his disciples 
his own spiritual children. Because you see, as we read earlier, if you add this requirement of circumcision, then you've got to add all the requirements of the law. If you haven't had a chance to read Professor Baugh's chapter in The Law is Not of Faith that talks about this very pericope immediately preceding verses 1 through 6, where it's perfectly clear that the law requires personal, perpetual, binding obligation for every individual who would try and live unto, up unto it. And so if you take this obligation, then you have to take all the obligations of the apostle upon your shoulder. Do you really want to yoke yourself with that? Oh, foolish Galatians. Because if you do, then Christ has no value for you. It's become null and void. And besides, he's fulfilled all those things on your behalf. He's your penalty payer who has paid the penalty for your not being able to live up to the requirements of the law. He's your probation keeper, the one who has done all that the first Adam failed to do and satisfied all the requirements personally, perpetually, perfectly with regards to meriting the approbation and approval of God. And now he'll give you that and dress you in that Christ has done that all for you. So you see, if you put it in this kind of context, that the Judaizers essentially were threatening the fundamental freedom and the liberty of conscience that Christ had bought for these disciples of Paul. No wonder he says uh, what he does. Men and women, truth matters very much to the apostle. And we have to be careful uh, that we don't come across as angry, <laughs> as bitter. Um, as I was reminded this morning, we ought to preach and teach with a smile on our face without compromising the dignity and solemnity of what we do. But nevertheless, Paul would say in another letter, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, Beware of the false circumcision. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for redeeming the Apostle Paul in an extraordinary way. And we thank you for your divine provision, uh, provision O oh Lord, in establishing him as an apostle of the new covenant such that he would clearly set forth with great lucidity all that you have accomplished in and through your only begotten son in turning away your wrath from upon your people because indeed uh, Christ propitiated your wrath in satisfying all the requirements that were set before him to win a people that would become his inheritance as a blessing sanctioned for his fulfillment of all the stipulations you set before him. Father, we pray that you would work in us like you did in Paul, a zeal for truth in an age when truth is so often thought to be relative. O oh Lord, work in us a zeal, a holy zeal, and deep-seated conviction 
for the objective truth of the gospel. So that, Lord, those who would come in and try and woo uh, your little sheep away from the truths uh, which have been communicated to them, Lord, that we would, uh, when appropriate, deal with them firmly and deal with them uh, passionately, O Lord, and truthfully, but also gently, lest we fall. Help us, O Lord, to that end. Thank you for embedding this portion of um, your truth and your holy scriptures. Help us rightly apply it. And uh, thank you for your uh, plan of redemption. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who bought our freedom, freedom from the iron furnace of sin. And uh, indeed, will help us persevere the end uh, to enter uh, what is truly ours and that to which we are entitled, namely heaven itself. In uh, your son's precious name we do pray. Amen. Copyright 2012, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.